This is David Tarkington, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Orange Park, Florida. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For any other information or questions you may have, please go to firstfam.org or give us a call at 904-264-2351. You can be seated this morning. You know, on Wednesday nights, we've been studying different psalms together. And this past week, we reflected on Psalm 69 as a group in the C building. And uh, Mr. Terry uh, was a part of that study, an encouraging part of that study. And I, we shared, we talked about on Wednesday about how lament has lost its place in Christian churches and how we, we are hardly aware of songs dealing with sorrow, grief, loss, and sadness. It's almost like we think those are things we need to chase away. And so I lamented our lack of lament in the church, and I shared a hymn uh, verbally with them. And Mr. Terry, after the service, you know, in his usual, is like, now listen, what I need you to do is lead us in that hymn on Sunday. That's my challenge. And I said, well, I'm preaching. And he said, well, that's great. Even better, you can do it. And so I, I said, I'm not going to do it. Jordan and I have already worked out the music, but in honor of my, my friend who, like many of you, has been incredibly kind to me since we've been here, and an incredible source of encouragement. I'm going to read you the hymn that I read to them on Wednesday, uh, and perhaps you'll look it up this afternoon and, and hear it, and it's a, it's a song of lament, but a song of hope. Uh, so I'm not going to sing an acapella, because I would, I would not make it through it, but I'm going to try and read it in honor of my, my good friend Terry. The hymn goes as follows, Dear refuge of my weary soul, on thee when sorrows rise, on thee when waves of trouble roll, my fainting hope relies. To thee I tell each rising grief, for thou alone canst heal. Thy word can bring a sweet relief for every pain I feel. But oh, when gloomy doubts prevail, I fear to call thee mine. The springs of comfort seem to fail and all my hopes decline. Yet, gracious God, where shall I flee? Thou art my only trust. And still my soul would cleave to thee, though prostrate in the dust. Hast thou not bid me seek thy face? And shall I seek in vain? And can the ear of sovereign grace be deaf when I complain? No, still the ear of sovereign grace attends the mourner's prayer. Oh, may I ever find access to breathe my sorrows there. Thy mercy seat is open still. Here let my soul retreat. With humble hope attend thy will and wait beneath thy feet. Thy mercy seat is open still. Here let my soul retreat. With humble hope, attend thy will and wait beneath thy feet. We can say that this morning because we do have a hope that's rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was Terry's hope. It's our hope. And I know from what little time I had with this endear, encouraging brother that he would encourage us to press on to make much of Jesus, 
and to study his word together in this time. He said he was looking forward to hearing me preach, and so I look forward to honoring him by preaching. So if you would, let's open our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Our text for this morning is 1 Timothy 3. My microphone needs to pull it out off the hair. So, all right. Also in honor of Terry, another bearded man who would, uh, who would be glad to see that my beard is causing trouble. I'm not shaving. Won't do it. Terry. So, <laughs> all right. All right. So First uh, Timothy 3 is our text. As you're turning there, recall where we have been and where we'll be and where we are in this letter. Paul is writing to young Timothy, a pastor of a young church in Ephesus. And as he writes to Timothy, he writes to a church uh, in Ephesus as well. And the, and the letter is not private correspondence as we would think of a personal letter, a personal email in our day, but a letter written to Timothy and yet also to the church. And Paul has encouraged this pastor, as we have seen, to stay the course, to maintain a fierce devotion to the gospel of the Lord Jesus, even opposing the ones who were corrupting the gospel through their false teaching, even to the point of reminding the church that if necessary, the the reality of church discipline is for those who will not recant of their errors and continue to promote relentless disunity. And then as David showed us, as Paul directs the church, he's giving matters of ordered practice. How should the church be gathered together? He exhorted the church to pray that God would enable them to live lives that are quiet, godly, and dignified in a corrupt society. So that through their godly Christ-like life, opportunity would arise for the gospel to spread throughout Ephesus. And then Paul began to address roles within the church. The complementary roles of men and women within the church. And as David showed us, both, he both points men and women to roles and behaviors that make much of Christ and little of self. Men leading in prayer and peacefulness rather than angry outbursts. Women honoring godly men who lead and then adorning themselves in ways that do not look like the temple workers who use their bodies to make income. God is telling us through Paul how his people, the church, must look different than the world. And part of that difference is revealed in how we relate to one another in the local church. And that instruction is continued for us in our text today. Now, sometimes you unintentionally start something, and I accidentally did that when I began to ask uh, you to respond after the reading of the, the scriptures, and then David started doing it, and so now it seems like we've got a new practice, uh, but practice and repetition are good, so you're, you're, you're getting better at this. I'm going to read 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and then I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and then we will all say together, thanks be to God. This is corporate unison. You don't even have to say it pretty. We're just talking out loud. You can do this. So, so I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. We'll all say together, thanks be to God, and let's be not ashamed to say that together, because how thankful we should be that we get to read and hear the very word of God together. That's right. So follow along as I read 1 Timothy 3, and be ready for your part after I finish. Paul writes, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, An overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, 
Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Best one yet. We're going we're gonna. to. So what in the world's an overseer, right? Is, is Paul talking about a supervisor at work? Is this just another term for a church micromanager or a project lead or a foreman or a general contractor? I mean, is this a reference to the one who's in charge of things? Paul, what on earth is an overseer? Well, that's the question I'm hoping to address and answer as we explore this text together this morning. And to do that, I think we first need to talk a little vocabulary. I want you to understand what I mean, and that can only happen if you understand how I'm using the words that I'm using. So here, the most, probably the most important foundational word we need to grasp is this word overseer that begins our text. In the original language, the word is episkopos. Perhaps you can hear some of our English words like episcopal or the word bishop, which are derived from that word. And the word translated just means a religious role, meaning both, or both, excuse me, a religious role involving both service and leadership. A religious role involving both service and leadership. And in the New Testament, the word overseer is interchangeable with some other words that we may have some familiarity with. Perhaps in your Bible reading, when you're reading through the book of Acts, Titus, James, or 1 Peter, you've come across the word elder. That word occurs most frequent. That's the most frequent occurrence of this similar term. Still another word is pastor, which you won't find in the English Standard Version because pastor is the English equivalent of the word shepherd. So when Paul says the church has been given shepherds in Ephesians chapter 4, the word that he uses is the word we get the title pastor from. What does that have to do with our text and the word we have namely here, overseer? Well, it has everything to do with our text and our word because here in verse 1, Paul says the role of overseer is an office. That doesn't mean a rectangular room filled with shelves, chairs, and a desk. But rather, it means an office in the way that we think of someone's position of responsibility. So the office of overseer refers to a specific position of responsibility in the local church. But there's a good question for us to ask here. Why the different words? Does this mean that every church should have overseers, elders, pastors? Do all of those Individual terms mean different individual offices? Well, no, it doesn't. The New Testament authors use these words interchangeably to refer to the same office. Let me show you that in real time. So why don't you flip over in your Bibles to the book of Acts, a book you guys have spent many, many Sundays in. The book of Acts and look at chapter 20 with me. We're going to look at just two verses over in Acts chapter 20. Where we're going to see... What I'm trying to help you see here. 
Look at verse 17. Luke records for us, it says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus, this is Paul, and called the elders of the church to come to him. Now, look just a little bit lower in verse 28. So Acts chapter 20, verse 17, then in verse 28. Paul's speaking to these elders and says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now that word, verse, that, that verb to care is the same word we get shepherd or pastor from. So the New American Standard Bible, the NIV, and the CSB all translate the word in that verse with our English word, shepherd the flock. So here Paul addresses this group from Ephesus and he uses all three words in speaking to and about them. So when you see in your New Testament, overseer, elder, pastor, shepherd, referring to a role or a responsibility in the church, they're referring to the same office. The office Paul is talking to Timothy about. And what becomes obvious is that churches ought to have a plurality of elders. Right there in Acts, it's called, Paul doesn't call the elder of the church, he calls the elders. Likewise, Philippians 1.1 references the overseers and deacons, plural. And in Titus 1, Paul tells Titus to raise up elders, plural. This is God's blueprint for church leadership, plurality, not singularity. And for obvious reasons, one lone elder who operates independently is in danger of always getting his way, which leads to anger and pride, or arrogance and pride, excuse me. But he's also in danger of burnout and moral failing because he's doing work that was designed for multiple people to shoulder so when Paul writes to Timothy about this office of overseer in the church, he's referring to the same office as elder or pastor, and he's encouraging Timothy with the reality that, hey, Timothy, you're not meant to do this alone. You don't have to be a lone wolf. You don't need to operate with your own agenda without input or support from other pastors in a local church. Now, you may be thinking, Mike, I've been in Baptist churches my whole life, and I've never heard of elders before. That sounds new, or even worse, Presbyterian. But our Baptist history, especially our Southern Baptist history, is one rooted in churches that were led by a plurality of elders or overseers. Mark Dever notes this when he writes, When evangelicals today hear the word elder, many immediately think Presbyterian. Yet, when Congregationalists, our forefathers, first arose back in the 16th century, they stressed eldership as well. Elders could be found in Baptist churches in America throughout the 18th and into the 19th century. W.B. Johnson, the first president of the Southern Baptist Convention, wrote a book on church life in which he strongly advocated the idea of plurality, a plurality of elders in the local church. Elders, pastors... Overseers are in our DNA as Baptist Christians. But who should occupy this office? Who should be an overseer and elder? That's what Paul is laying out for Timothy. 
And church, this is a gift for us. Because we are not left in the dark about what qualifications a pastor should have. Now it's fitting to ask at this point, why is it necessary for Paul to write to Timothy about the qualifications of a pastor? Well, remember what we have seen, right? Remember what we've seen in the letter. Remember chapter 1 where Paul revealed that the false teachers that had crept into the church desired to be recognized as teachers, as leaders in the church. They wanted to be regarded and respected. They wanted recognition and a position of leadership. But Paul dismantled their expertise in chapter 1. And he did it in two ways. First, he dismantled their competency, showing how their teaching was actually corrupting the gospel. And then he dismantled their character as they promoted sinful behaviors and blasphemed the gospel by their teaching and conduct. So, then it's fitting for Paul to write to Timothy and say, shut those guys down. Put them out. But that leaves a hole for Timothy. Who should lead? It's like Paul says, Timothy, look for guys like this. Not guys like that. Paul then lays out the qualifications of a pastor that demonstrate both character and competency. Character and competency. The church needs good leaders, but not good in the worldly sense of charisma or influence. No, the church needs good leaders who demonstrate right character and right competency. And just so you know, as we get into this, the lion's share of the qualifications in this passage deal with a pastor's character. Too many churches have prioritized competency, degrees, professional experience in their pastors over character in their pastors. And in doing so, they've wounded themselves deeply and wounded the pastor by letting him lead. So I had a chance uh, to sit in on a pastoral internship meeting at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. once. Every fall and spring, this church hosts a group of six to eight men who desire to be in full-time ministry. And the internship is very intense. In the span of five months, the interns read roughly 5,000 pages and write 100 papers. They meet weekly and discuss the papers they've submitted and the reading they've completed with Mark, the pastor of Capitol Hill. So in this meeting that I attended, one of the interns, Blake, had made a mistake. So he had to write a paper about the Reformation, which began in 1517, and he had written in his paper that it began in AD 300. And Mark asked him why he thought it began then. And Blake, in the meeting, kind of hung his head and drooped his shoulders and said, I'm sorry, I just just got it wrong. Now, mind you, in the room, there were the interns, the church staff, and then all of us spectators. There's like 25 or 30 people in this pastor's office. And Blake got real quiet for a while, and he Stopped contributing to the discussion. Just kind of got inwardly focused. Which led Mark to stop the meeting. And he turned to Blake, who's sitting on his left. And he said to him, Blake, do you feel inferior to these other brothers? Do you feel less than them because you didn't graduate college? And you could hear, you'd hear a pin drop in the room. 
And Blake honestly said, yes, I do. And Mark looked him in the eye and said, Blake, I'd take you over pastors with PhDs all over their walls. Because if I poke you, the Bible comes out. And then Mark bear hugged the guy right there and said, I want you at this table and I expect you to participate. Blake was competent to be at the table, not because of a professional education, but because he loved Jesus and because he loved God's word and his life displayed that love. And Paul prioritizes that kind of character in his lifts of qualifications alongside competency. But I want you to think with me as we go through these characteristics, there's 16 of them. We'll spend a few minutes on some and then we're going to move really quickly through others. Don't think of this like a spreadsheet. Think of it like a portrait. I want you to see it as a picture, not an Excel document. So one, a pastor aspires to pastor. The first verse says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, a reluctant pastor is unhelpful and won't be useful for the church. An elder pastor should aspire to the task of oversight. And this word carries the weight of eager pursuit and desire. To pastor in the church, one must aspire, eagerly desire to do it. Two, the office of overseer is reserved for men. The text says he desires a noble task. Though it is increasingly scandalous to say in our culture, the Bible is actually unambiguous about the office of pastor being reserved for men who were born men. The first group of men I worked with in our church plant to potentially become elders worked through this list we just read from 1 Timothy. And I asked the group, right? So I asked them, I said, how do you feel you measure up to this list? Especially seeing the high bar of the qualifications. And one brother leaned forward and said, well, I am a male. <laughs> That's all he had. <laughs> but it is an aspect of the qualifications for an elder. Three, Paul gives this blanket statement. An overseer must be above reproach. And that, that means his behavior is exemplary, not perfect. If above reproach meant that Timothy, Paul, and everyone else, not, if, if it meant that we had to be perfect, then Timothy, Paul, and everyone else not named Jesus would be disqualified. One author helpfully explains above reproach in this way. Being above reproach means that an elder is to be the kind of man whom no one suspects of wrongdoing and immorality. People would be shocked to hear this kind of man charged with such acts. Being above reproach does not mean that he maintains sinless perfection. It means that his demeanor and behavior over time have garnered respect and admiration from others. He lives a life worthy of the calling of God. Ephesians 4. That's what it means to be above reproach. Four. And this one can be touchy or confusing for some. But Paul writes, he must be the husband of one wife. Now this refers to devotion, not just divorce. Certainly men who have wrecked their marriages ending in divorce while claiming devotion to Jesus are disqualified from serving as pastors. But there are godly men 
who meet Jesus later in life after a previous divorce or men who have remarried after losing a spouse. So they have been married twice because they are a widower. Or what about the single Christian, like perhaps Paul and maybe even Timothy? Paul writes, he must be the husband. So we must ask ourselves, should, should we, people like that be kept from this office? If they are married or single and living in Christ-like faith. Now, my opinion, I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. Because let's be honest, people. There are men who may only be married once, but they're awful husbands, devoted to themselves. Those men do not meet this qualification because they can count only one spouse. That's not what's happening here. Paul speaks of men whose marriages are marked by selfless devotion to their wives. Their love for their spouse looks like that Ephesians 5 love. What Paul is saying is that you should be able to observe a pastor's marriage and say, I'd like our marriage to look more like that. Not perfect, but growing in Christ-likeness. And I want to pause right here and speak to those of us who are married, particularly husbands. Maybe you come in here this morning and your marriage feels like it's on the verge of collapse. Or it even feels dead. Listen. The God who raised Jesus from the dead can breathe life into your marriage again. Yes, it will be hard. Yes, it will take time. But remember the promise of Galatians 6, 9. And let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. Listen, husband, wife, lean into Jesus and lean on Jesus. Trust him to rebuild what sin destroys. The gospel of our God has enough power to ransom sinners from death. He has enough power to rescue marriages that long ago felt destined for the dump heap. How can we turn the ship around? How can you turn the ship around? It starts with honesty. Honesty with yourself. Honesty with your spouse and with other Christians. I would urge you to find a couple in this church with whom you can share your struggles who will listen to you, pray with you, care for you, encourage you with the gospel to keep going. Get counseling from a godly counselor who can direct you to the hope found in the gospel for you and your marriage. Listen, the Lord does not desire for your marriage to be a statistic. He desires for your marriage to be a display of his gospel. And if you'll abandon your self-saving efforts or maybe some of your self-destructing efforts, the Lord can rescue, restore, and revive your marriage. Five, an elder should be sober-minded. This isn't about intoxication or intellect, but rather discernment. An overseer should be a careful thinker. One who is equipped to carefully think through matters of faith and practice and apply them to the local church. Six, a pastor must possess self-control. Impulsive men who do not show restraint in their lives are not fit to serve as pastors. A pastor should exercise control of themselves, not giving in to every impulse or desire or saying everything that comes to their minds. They listen more than they talk. Seven, an elder must be respectable. 
That their lives are such that people respect them. This isn't someone who has to demand your respect. You will respect me. That's not what Paul means here. But rather someone, when you're around them, you respect them. Just because of the pattern of their lives. Eight. An overseer is hospitable. With their time, resources, and homes, a pastor is marked by hospitality. He makes time for people. He makes space for others in his routines and around his table. Hospitality is the mark of a pastor. Nine, he must be able to teach. And not just have teaching skill. In Titus chapter 1 verse 9, Paul gives more detail to this qualification saying, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. A pastor in the church should be able to instruct Christians and even non-Christians in what the Bible says in biblical truth. He's not the Bible answer, man. If you ask me to list off all the kings of the northern and the southern kingdom this morning, I fail. I may get like three, and they're in the wrong kingdom if I name them. But when he teaches the Bible, it's clear that he has an ability. That's a competency a pastor must have. Ten, an elder is not a drunkard. An elder is not given to the abuse of alcohol. He's not a slave to the bottle. Eleven. An overseer is not violent, but gentle. The character of an elder is that of courageous humility. They aren't domineering or oppressive, but rather respond with godliness. This doesn't mean weak. Some of us have bought into the view that masculinity assumes that gentle means weak. If that's the case, we have a really weak Messiah. Because in Matthew 11... Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Church, gentleness is not weakness. There was no one stronger than the Lord Jesus who describes himself as gentle. Dads. Would your children say you're gentle with them? Would your wife? If not, look to Jesus and learn from him. Twelve, an elder is not quarrelsome. He doesn't go around looking to pick fights and start arguments. Now, guys, maybe some of you need to scrub your Twitter feeds this afternoon or your social media accounts because that also deals with this text. Are you quarrelsome? With all of your words. 13, a pastor is not a lover of money. That has to do with greed. A pastor can make money and spend money, but he must not love it. His life must not be consumed by an overwhelming desire for wealth. Now, now some churches have used this as an excuse for paying pastors poorly. That's a twisting of this text. It's not your job to keep a pastor humble. God can do that. Rather, don't hire a pastor who's consumed by passion for material wealth. 14, Paul writes, He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? This requirement focuses on the the family life of a pastor. 
Does he lead his home well? That's the question. So if a man desires or aspires to pastor, but his home is in chaos, it would be foolish to put him in leadership. Now again, church, I want to remind you, this doesn't mean perfection, because if that were the case, none could serve as pastors. But it is clear to outsiders that his home is marked by godly leadership. No elders are perfect husbands or fathers. If you would like some proof of that, I have some expert witnesses sitting right in front of me in the third row. But even though our families may not be perfect, there's a harmony in the home that derives from the godly leadership of dad. And keeping children submissive does not mean perfection. Church, so many pastors' kids have been crushed by the weight of a church's unhealthy and unrealistic expectation of them. That's why we joke about pastors' kids, sadly. So let me ask you to do us pastors a favor. Let our kids be kids. Don't apply some weird super standard to them by twisting this text. The focus is on the character of the dad, not the actions of the children. Does he father well such that his children, sinful as they are, no daddy loves them? 15. He must not be a recent convert. A leader in the church should have time to mature in the faith before he's placed in leadership. That would be particularly challenged. Think about this. For Timothy, as the church of the Lord Jesus there in Ephesus had only been around for a short time. And in fact, the church itself had only existed for a short time. This church was young, but the church was young. But nonetheless, Paul in, instructs Timothy to resist rushing people into leadership. Again, like tasty bark on good barbecue. A good leader takes time to develop. And Paul warns against what can happen if a pastor is called too quickly. He says he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. You see, there's a danger to the new immature Christian who is placed in leadership too hastily. They may become arrogant and fall. Oh, church, has this not proven true? Someone who is radically converted and far too quickly thrust into leadership because they had some knowledge and skill, without maturity, their pride takes over. And to use Paul's earlier words, they have made a shipwreck of their faith. Patience in calling pastors, elders, and overseers is helpful to the church and to the potential pastor. Finally, 16. Moreover, he must, not, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. What's his reputation like with non-Christians? That's what Paul's referring to with that term, outsiders. Does this brother have a good reputation at work, in the marketplace? Do non-Christians hate when he comes around, or are they glad to see him? How does he treat people? I mean, is he a jerk? Is he condescending or uncaring? Is he indifferent towards people he disagrees with? Or even worse, is he quick to point out their flaws publicly in person or online? What do people say of him? Paul says this matters again because if he is hated by outsiders... He may fall into disgrace. 16 skills and requirements of any man who desires to be a pastor. Church, this should be the lens 
through which you look at us who serve you as pastors. Not some worldly corporate productivity metric. Not some scale that's devised by CEOs and leaders of business, but given to us by the pen of a faithful pastor under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So let me land this plane with a few quick thoughts of application. One, if you take this list as a portrait, who does it look like? It looks a lot like Jesus. Pastors and would-be pastors should bear the aroma of Christ in their lives. Church, let's look for pastors who resemble Jesus. Two, the false teachers in Ephesus had desire, but they did not have competency or character. So we might build our pastoral equation like this. Desire minus character and competency equals a false teacher. But desire plus character and competency equals a faithful pastor. Three, I wonder if some men in this text, you hear this, and there is a growing desire for you to pastor. You see this list and you don't want to run, you want to grow. I would urge you to let that desire be made known to David or myself and let us walk with you as you work through what that means for you. God raises up pastors from local churches, so we should assume he's doing that here. Four, maybe you've listened to this sermon and up to this point you thought, whew, I'm glad none of this has anything to do with me, right? Well, brother, sister, every requirement except being a male, being able to teach, and being a recent convert is repeated elsewhere in the New Testament of every follower of Jesus. We're all on the hook. Nearly all of this list applies to everyone who claims to be a disciple of Jesus. Maybe you need to go back through this list this afternoon and thank God for how he has grown some of these characteristics in you. And then ask him to help you grow by his Holy Spirit in those areas where you are weak. Five. Brothers and sisters, can we not look at this list and be thankful? Thankful for Jesus, who is the perfect overseer, who himself embodies everything here on this list, who cares for us as the chief shepherd to the point of shedding his own blood on the cross for our sin and rising from the grave that we might have eternal life. Many of us, even in this room, can look back and give thanks for the flawed but faithful men he gave us to shepherd us, to lead us, and to care for us. Pastors who were for us the very hands and feet of Jesus. Thank you, David. You pastored me as a 13-year-old knucklehead, and now you pastor me as a four-year-old pastor. I'm thankful for your ministry. What, it wasn't clear? Well, I'll get that later. Listen, beloved church, that's what this text is ultimately about. Seeing the love of God in the face of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit in the lives of faithful pastors. We all need faithful pastors because they point us over and over and over again to the love of God displayed in Christ Jesus. We don't need charismatic business leaders who are productive or flashy. We need godly men who serve as faithful elders, pastors, overseers, who say time and time again, look to Christ, look to him, hope in him, learn from him, 
Depend on him, for he will bring us all of his sheep home, just like he brought our dear friend Terry home this morning, to be with him for all eternity. Jordan and the worship team are going to come, and we're going to sing, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me, as we again confirm that we are incapable of doing this ourselves. With God, nothing is impossible. But before we sing that, as we close, let me pray for us together. Oh God, we rejoice today in hope. We realize that we live in a broken world that brings many griefs. And yet you are so kind and gracious and loving that you give us faithful pastors who point us to your son Jesus. And I pray that you would continue to raise up faithful pastors here from this local church as you have been faithful to do. We pray, continue that amazing work. And Lord, we know that this is not a work we can manufacture on our own. No, we confess, O oh Lord, not us, but through Christ in us. So as we reflect on this song and, re and receive and celebrate your good gospel truth, let us worship in hope and in joy and in the comfort of the gospel this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name.